0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning America. Welcome to a veteran story on americaswebradio.com. I am Pete Mecca, your host. Today I want to talk to you about the Great Tragedy. It's also called World War 1, also known as the Great War. Folks, when you hear or read stories concerning World War 1, you'll hear the American soldiers referred to as Doughboys. D-O-U-G-H, Doughboys, just like the dough used to make bread. There are two predominant explanations as to the origin of the nickname. One explanation claims the nickname dates back to the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848. During long marches over dusty terrain, the dust, called adobe, like the house adobe, Coated our soldiers' uniforms, giving our boys the nickname "Adobes," which morphed into "Dobies," which eventually morphed into "Doughboys." The second explanation dates back to the soldiers of the Continental Army. They kept certain emblems on their uniforms white in color by applying clay. Well, when it rained, the clay on the uniforms turned into doughy blobs, thus the Doughboy moniker. Now, and also in World War I, and we're going to call it the Great War, that's what it was, a British soldier in the Great War was called a Tommy, an abbreviation of Tommy Atkins, a generic name used on British government forms, much like Americans use the term John Doe. The French, however, due to many of them having beards or mustaches, were called Pallus, meaning hairy ones. (laughs) So the Doughboys, the Tommies, and the hairy ones fought in the Great War, as did other soldiers in some shape or form from over 100 countries. Due to so many nations participating in the conflict, it was called the Great War. With the start of World War II, the great wars better known as world war 1 World War 1 was indeed a great war but it should have been called the great tragedy Today you will learn the reason why On June 28, 1914, Australian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife were in Bosnia Journey to the residence of the provincial governor in the provincial cap- uh, capital of Sarajevo. Despite repeated indications of deadly threats and sworn violence by Serbian national members of Nera Obradna, meaning national offense, and the clandestine uh, faction called the Black Hand, the dangers were either downplayed or simply ignored. As the Archduke's chauffeured motor car navigated the narrow streets, an assassination squad of five nationalistic young Serbs and a Bosnian Muslim armed with pitchers and bombs, pistols and bombs, sorry about that, laid in wait at various positions. One assassin actually tossed a bomb at the motor car? It bounced off and exploded underneath a vehicle following the Archduke. One security officer was wounded. Now with indifference to safety unthinkable in today's high-tech security requirements, the Archduke's motor car resumed the journey as if nothing had happened. He reached the provincial uh, governor's uh, capital, and the first thing he told the guy was, well, that's a heck of a way to uh, uh, welcome a guest throwing bombs at him. And that's about all that was discussed. He left there and approximately 45 minutes after the first attack, his motor car came to a brief halt when the chauffeur took a wrong turn. One of the conspirators, Gabriel Princip, stepped forward with a revolver and opened fire. Archduke Ferdinand died almost 10 minutes later and his wife died instantly the foremost cause of the Great War, later known as World War I, has been continuously, yet inaccurately blamed on the assassination of the Archduke and his wife. Spot on, the murders did ignite wrath and saber-rattling from numerous ethnic groups, kingdoms, countries, and suspicious religious and tribal alliances. But, the little-discussed catalyst for the great war that cost millions of lives can be found in the turn of the century military concept called mobilization. You see, in 1914, opposing leaders were not blessed with the hotlines or red phones for immediate cons- consultation that we accept today as just standard. So-called rapid transportation of era was a slow-moving motor car transversing terrible roads or a smoke-belching train navigating perilous mountain passes. Airplanes were considered nothing more than playthings that lacked a serious future as a reliable or rapid mass transportation system. Now, carrier pigeons were certainly available, but, 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 and believably, could have gotten the job done. But by the time the birds flew the coop and landed on another coop... With any consultation overture wrapped around their skinny legs, the fog of war had changed dramatically. In order to protect their borders, its citizens and its government, the military machines of the air began what they had practiced for years on years. Mobilization. These were armies of a few thousand newfangled things called trucks, slow trains, Unreliable flying machines, obsolete generalship, and millions upon millions of horses. Fancy-dressed cavalrymen armed with lances, which were basically fancy spears, would spoon- soon spur their horse heading home headlong into yet-, yet respected military machine gun positions and die by the tens of thousands including their horses. So these nations began their mobilization, contacting millions of officers and men by courier or word of mouth as their war machines began to organize and load tons upon tons of food, ammo, artillery, uniform, uniforms, hay for horses, veterinarians, saddles, blacksmiths, doctors and nurses, metal equipment, boots and gun belts, administrative support, canteens, and millions of other war materials that had to come together as fast as possible under near impossible criteria. They had to mobilize. When one panicky government heard through the rumor mills or political grapevines that another country was mobilizing, thus the urgent need to mobilize their own forces, or be caught with the military pants down. Like an army of dominoes, the military machines fell in line until the men and officers and their horses were at long last ready to fight. The problem was, on what battlefield? Now, the German army was hostage to the Schlieffen plan, the brainchild of Count Alfred von Schlieffen to use a huge wheeling maneuver through neutral Belgium into the French frontier. Now, the and material needed for the plan to succeed would be astronomical. It would be enormous, okay, and require total allegiance to an overwhelming right-flank maneuver. This guy was so addicted to his plan, the uh, Scheifelin's plan, his last words on his deathbed, confirmed his addiction to his plan his last words were keep the right flank strong and then he croaked well Germany struck struck first the great war was on however a modified Scheifling plan also kept the left flank strong thus robbing the Germans of their much-desired swift victory. I think old Count Scheifman probably was turning over in his grave as millions and millions of soldiers dug thousands of miles of trenches and began dying by the thousands, then into the millions. The Great War was a slaughter that could have been prevented, but the lack of communication and common sense turned the conflict into the great tragedy. Passchendaele is one of many low elevations roughly five miles east of the Belgian town of Ypres. It's spelled Y-P-R-E-S, yet pronounced differently in different dialects. Anyway, on that general rise of Passchendaele is the last remaining place for thousands of young soldiers of the Commonwealth of England. The cemetery is called Tancat. 12,000 British soldiers lie in peace at Tancat, victim uh, victims of the Third Battle of Ypres. Now listen to this. The cemetery also commemorates the 35,000 American doughboys that were never found after the battle. By the same token, a large monument at Tepal, France, records the names of 73,000 plus missing soldiers from the Battle of the Somme. Casualties of that magnitude are totally unacceptable in today's world of wars, yet the horrible casualties of the Great War were customary and sadly, they were expected. Over 65 excuse me, over 65 million military participants fought in the Great War. Of those, 65 million participants, 10 million would perish. The last veteran of the Great War, Frank Buckles, died on February 27 2011, three weeks after his 110th birthday. Frank lied about his age and enlisted in the Army when he was only 16 years old. In December of 1917, he set sail for England on the Carpathia, meeting and talking to the crew members who had been aboard the Carpathia when the ship rescued survivors from the Titanic less than six years earlier. He said that was one heck of an interesting uh, voyage talking to these guys that rescued the survivors of the Titanic. Now, the last known veteran of the Great War from any nation is thought to be a British subject named Florence Green. He died on February 4, 2012, also at the age of 110. And when with his death... An era had slipped gently into the good night, and so did their stories. When we return from our first break, I'm going to read you the excerpts from an American soldier, an American doughboy, who wrote a diary during his time in the Great War, or as I like to call it, the Great Tragedy. I'll be right
2: back.
0: Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.ShineHisLightMinistry.com or text 770 655 8055 You're listening to America's web radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Okay, folks, I'm back with you. We're discussing the Great War, which I call the Great Tragedy, World War 1. I. I have something very special for you today. It's a diary. It starts out like this. In case I am killed, please send this diary to Mrs. O.J. Garton at 4416 Grand Avenue West in of Wisconsin, USA. Thus began the diary of the great war veteran, Private Dewey Garton, Battery F of the 61st Artillery Regiment. His entries began on June 14, 1918 and end upon his safe separation from service on February 25, 1919. The following excerpts articulate the carefully written verses of a world tragedy as penned by Private Garten, who realized full well those words may be read by a grieving mother. It starts June 14, 1918, less than three weeks into his 19th birthday. Gardens unit departs Fort Seaver, Georgia, for Camp Eustis, Virginia. He writes, We were a happy bunch and anxious to get started. July 11, 1918. Leaving Camp Eustace, the soldiers marched to a small stream to board motorboats for the crossing. Once on dry land, the men marched through Newport News, Virginia, to Camp Stewart. Garton writes, we went into quarantine June 17th, 1918. Following the six-day quarantine, if you remember now, that was during the Spanish flu epidemic. Following a six-day quarantine, the soldiers marched back to Newport News to board a ship for France. Garton writes, the Red Cross cheered us by giving us hot coffee and cake before boarding. I will never forget my last step on American soil. I hate to leave it, yet I want to. July 18, 1918, 10 a.m. The convoy sails with an escort of two torpedo boats and one cruiser. Garton said of setting sail, finally, into the great Atlantic, Oh, my, what a feeling or sensation. The big ship sailed along so smooth and fast. July 20th, 1918. The balance of the convoy gathers near Hoboken, New Jersey, and sails for France. Garton writes, The sea was somewhat rough. The big ship would rock and roll. Hey, maybe he's the one who invented the term rock and roll, right? (laughs) The big ship would rock and roll. It was a lot of fun. If a fella could stand it, we sailed away together, almost 20,000 strong. July 30th, 1918. Their convoys bushwhacked by German submarines. Of the action, Garten said... I was lying in my bunk about 7 o'clock reading when all at once the alarm bell began to ring. Some were excited and scared. All at once, bam! And the ship, ship sh- shook madly. I thought a torpedo had hit us, but it proved to be one of our own 6-inch deck guns shooting at a sub close by. Now, Private Garton runs topside to observe a sea battle as the escorting... Uh, destroyers engaged German submarines. The destroyers possibly sunk one submarine before the other subs just skedaddled. Garton said of the action, we were as calm as could be and laughing and talking. We sailed into port at 8 o'clock that night. The people on shore waved handkerchiefs and hands at us. The French people seemed comical. Their talk was more so. I think I will like France just fine. August 7th, 1918. Garden boards a train near saint neu and he says of it, it was very crowded and uncomfortable. That night I slept on a plank a foot wide and certainly did not like it next day, August 8th, 1918, he said, or wrote, I never suffered so much in all my life as I did last night trying to sleep. I prayed for morning to come. August 15th, 1918. Took a long hike today with a gas mask on. Went several miles with no stopping. We were nearly exhausted. I want to make a special note about what he's saying about gas mask. Throughout the diary, he makes references to his gas mask. Chemical warfare during the Great War was deadly and painful. It is now outlawed uh, in, the, in war. The Germans start all the madness on April 22, 1915, by firing over 150 tons of chlorine gas... On French troops in Prep, Belgium. The allies, including the Americans, soon followed suit. Chemical agents included tear gas, mustard glass, gas, chlorine, and several more chemical agents that caused swelling in the eyes, nose, armpits, and any soft skin area. Blindness and massive blisters, headaches, severe headaches, and pneumonia caused by blisters on soldiers' lungs hospitalized tens of thousands of soldiers. And thousands more died an absolute horrible death. Chemical and biological warfare is indeed a sickening way to fight a war. And that's why it's, uh, it was uh, supposedly never used in World War II, although uh, we believe the Japanese did in China. Okay, training and letter-writing marches, signal schools, parades for VIPs, bunk and field inspection, even sightseeing became daily, deadly, uh, <laughs> daily routines for private garden. September 26, 1918. Now we're getting into the tragedy of war. Went to Old grave site, now being dug up. Lots of skeletons and bones. Found hair combs and hair, too. It certainly was gruesome. Something I don't want to see again. Unquote. But I'm sure he did. October 2nd, 1918. He writes... Went through the terror gas chamber again took off mask in in the room gas attacked my eyes made my tears run and pained extremely I'm sure it was you know folks rain cold mud disease firing artillery and yes American football and baseball in the rear areas between the killing times were common Then we come to October 21st, 1918. Again, he talks about poison gas. Gas instruction by Lieutenant G. in the gun pits. I certainly do not want to be gassed, nor did anyone in the Great War. There's a horrible, horrible way to die. There was a, a dog that the American soldiers took over there, Sergeant Stubby. He went over as a private and a little four-legged dog, a bulldog. They uh, eventually uh, promoted him to uh, sergeant, Sergeant Stubby. I might tell that story one day. A great dog, became a hero and everything else, became a worldwide sensation. But they even had gas masks for Sergeant Stubby. They had gas masks for their dogs. The Germans had gas masks for their German shepherds. Um, Everybody tried to protect anything that was living from these chemical and biological agents. Uh, I'm certainly glad I never had to be (laughs) uh, attacked by gas. October 23rd, 1918. Tractors returned the 61st guns to Lee Brent early this morning. Now, he was in artillery. Keep that in mind. The names of our four big guns belonging to Battery F are Blackjack, the initials UB, Damn, UB, Dam, Weeping William, and Big Ben. We are also using the French 75s. Artillery in World War I was a great killer, and it was used with great success. Uh, is one of the things that the soldiers feared more than just about anything else except for those horrible machine gun pits October 28, 1918 he writes the 61st artillery is moving to to Ra. it is a city recently inhabited by Germans it has now been captured by the Americans October 3rd, 1918. I have good war news. The Kaiser has abdicated. Austria is begging for peace, and Turkey is solely in the power of the Allies. I wrote a letter to Kala. I believe that was his girlfriend back home. I sure wish I was with her now, as all soldiers do in battle. November eleventh, nineteen eighteen, the Great War is over. Garten writes in his diary, "Today will be a Memorial Day in the history of the world." We join the main battery with gas masks, helmets, rifles, and sidearms, just in case. The Kaiser has fled to Holland in a powerful motor car. The King and Queen of Bavaria had fled from the throne. The Crown Prince of Germany signed away all his rights to the throne. The German fleet refused to act. The sailors hoisted, hoisted red days of revolution. The officers were shot and killed. In many cities, The revolution has broken out. As the Great War ended, the guns fell silent and the soldiers stopped killing, but misguided political seeds were sown to guarantee a future conflict known as World War II. We'll be right back, folks, after our second break.
2: Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor Show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor Show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor Show, only right here on America's Web Radio. at the j roy ritchie memorial prayer line it's so important for our vets and veterans please join in praying for your brothers and sisters there are so many out there one in four homeless are veterans this is absolutely ridiculous and we will have more and more on this as we go on, but please go to our website and if you can, we'd love to have you as a patron. So at that point, let's get back to Pete and World War One. All
1: right, folks, back with you. Um I was talking about the how Miss got a political seeds with for- sowing the the next war, World War II. See, the communists eventually governed Russia. The Empire of Japan was on a path to become a Pacific military power. Britain's colonial rule had started to fade, and the paranoid French initiated building projects squandering millions and millions of francs on the useless Maginot Line falsely believing this defensive line of fortifications would ward off any future German invasion. And after World War I, there was a disheartened, scrawly German corporal named Adolf Hitler who vowed to revenge his country's defeat and humiliation. Garten continues his diary. January twentieth, 1919. Coming home. He wrote. We steamed out of Marseilles at 5 p.m. I ate supper and went to bed. I slept real good. February 25th, 1919. The last entry. Garden ends his diary with these words. The boys left camp Upton about 8 a.m. It was a sad separation. You know, folks, this guy went through a lot in World War One, as most of our doughboys did. Yet when they broke up, they're on the way home. They made it. They made it home alive. But they're still buddies. They're still brothers. And uh, that separation can be sad because, you know, you probably never will see your buddies again. Now, while examining... Private Darton's, uh, Garton's war diary. It became apparent that this young American boy had softened his combat experiences and the horrors he witnessed on the Western Front. He didn't write about all the gore and blood and stuff like that, and I start to wonder uh, why didn't he do that? Well, he did it for a good reason. Had he not returned, the diary would have been sent to his mother. Wisely, had he died, this good son did not wish he bereaved mother, further so anguished. Dewey Garton also served in World War II, teaching gunnery in Texas to America's next generation of soldiers. When asked why, at 44 years old, he was getting uniform, Garton replied, Hell, I was drafted. <laughs> And my deepest appreciation to uh, Mrs. Kimberly Johnson for trusting me with uh, her very special family heirloom, her grandfather's World War War, War I diary. The Great War. The Great Tragedy. You know, folks, while reading this diary, I was reminded of the writings of Susie Kassam in Rise Up and Salute the Sun. She wrote, Let us also acknowledge that the hearts which suffer the most from our wars are those of mothers their vital voices have been left out of the political equation for too long an Iraqi or American mother cries the same as an Israeli or Afghan mother the eyes of a mother who has suffered the loss of a child in war can destroy the soul of anyone who gazes upon them more souls become casualties of war than the physical bodies. Now I would say she was spot on. Folks, between the start of the Great War, the great tragedy of World War I in 1914, and the end of World War Two in 1945, over 100 million human beings died in wars. I remember uh, the quote by our commander in Vietnam, General William Westmoreland, who said about war and its great tragedy, and I always remember this, he said, and I quote, soldiers don't start wars, politicians start wars, and it's true. And uh, don't want to get too political here, but there is a gentleman running for a uh, Congress seat uh, in Georgia, and he has said that you cannot serve God and serve in the military. I'd like to disagree with that, gentlemen. Uh, there are millions of, of uh, veterans and active-duty personnel in Georgia, and I'm sure they trust in God just like I did in Vietnam. And you can serve God and serve in the military. Uh, God bless our military people and the people of Georgia I want to also discuss with you uh, something I'm doing next week it's going to be very unusual I had a a Vietnam veteran lined up next Wednesday but he's (laughs) he had to go into surgery for heart repair due to Agent Orange and um, our station owner and manager David is very familiar with Agent Orange best buddy just passed away from the side effects of agent orange but this uh young man that served in vietnam and is now suffering from agent orange asked me to do something for him next wednesday which i plan to do he said pete one of my favorite stories you ever wrote was it's a wonderful life just like the movie it's a wonderful life by jimmy stewart and i'm sure that most of you have seen that movie it's a it's a it's a national treasure now uh, around christmas it's a wonderful life with jimmy stewart i wrote his story but you don't know the full story about it's a wonderful life and you certainly don't know the full story of jimmy stewart he was a bomber pilot in world war ii well respected very brave man but he suffered from the war just like a lot of guys did now in the scene in the movie It's a Wonderful Life Jimmy Stewart's standing on the bridge uh, he thinks he just lost all his money and, and uh, he was going to go to jail and everything else uh, and he's on that bridge looking at the cold water flowing underneath and he's thinking about suicide guess what in reality Jimmy Stewart had thought about that And that was his first movie after the war. It's a great story, as most stories are told, if we get to the stories that guys are willing to tell. I keep telling veterans all over America and everyone that I meet and write stories about, please, please, please tell your stories. World War II generations passing at, at an accelerated rate now. They are not going to be with us much longer. And with them, die their stories. With their passing, so goes the truth. Korean veterans, uh, there's more of them. But my buddies from Vietnam, my brothers and sisters from Vietnam, because we're fighting Agent Orange, as we have lost so many of our brothers, too. We are down to the same number left as the World War II veterans. And mathematically, it's feasible that they could outlive us, but I don't think that's going to happen. So I say to, to all of you, when you see a veteran, especially these old veterans of their own walkers, uh, maybe in a wheelchair, uh, you can look at them feel sorry for them, but I guarantee you, uh, 50 or 70 years ago, they were a bigger badass than you ever will be but these guys have have earned your respect, they deserve your respect, walk up and say, thank you, thank you for your service, and mean it. It, it, It's standard now for people to say, thank you for your service, and then they walk off. It's more than that. Uh, People give up their lives. They sign a dotted line that says, yeah, I'll give up my life for my country, and I can serve God and serve in the military. Uh, I've talked to the station manager many times about this, Uh, young men and women who can't find a way in life when they get out of high school and don't go to college or technical school. The military is a great place for a young man or woman to go to, go into, and, and, and learn discipline, learn how to say yes sir and no sir, learn how to follow orders. But more importantly, they learn how to give orders. They gain self-respect, self-confidence, and probably will make something of themselves where if they didn't go into the military, they're going to end up in trouble or in low-paying jobs. They have no skills. Our children that come out of high school, they need to do something. They need to get off the streets. They need to get out of politics. They need some discipline and instruction, and the military is a great place to do it. Um, folks, I, I have done several articles on World War One. Dewey Gartner is the only veteran that I was able to write about who had a diary, and I was so thankful to get a hold of that because I was fascinated by the Great War. I always wondered how in the world did we get into such a mess. And it was due to mobilization. I hope I can do a story one uh, one week for you on Sergeant Stubby, the little bulldog that served over there. And then there was a horse in Korea called Sergeant Reckless. These animals also served with us. We had uh, uh, service dogs in Vietnam. We have service dogs now. They they parachute out with the Rangers and everybody else. Uh, these animals are respected a lot more now than they used to be but the great war was such a great tragedy because of all these millions of horses that were basically just worked to death pulling artillery pulling loads through mud Uh, and sometimes they were just worked until they dropped dead of exhaustion Uh, it was a a terrible way for, for a horse to go, a terrible way for men to go But that's the way it was. But these animals that that serve with us, if you think about it, that's all they know. That's their life. And their trainers, they will give their life for their trainer. They will give their life for a squad. They will give their life for one soldier. Their reaction is to protect the human being. Just like with the, with the uh, uh, assisted dogs that you see around, they are trained to protect that human being. I have seen so many horrible photos that I won't even put on my, my Facebook page about the animals who suffered and died in, in all wars. I, I mean, the, the the Civil War was no exception. We had cavalry in the Civil War, and their horses got shot out from under many times. There were several of our generals who had. So uh, the horses shot out from under them in combat. And the horses paid the ultimate price, as have dogs, pigeons, pigeons in World War One. There is one pigeon who saved the American platoon uh, during a, a, one of the last battles. He was wounded as he flew out with his message. And that pigeon was honored by the British and is stuffed <laughs> and on display now. Uh, great, great story. You know, when you think about it, we had generals who really didn't understand the machine gun in World War One, And our soldiers, our doughboys and the Tommies, and the hairy ones, the French, they got out of these trenches that were rat-infested, filled with water, diseased, probably gas floating around in the air, and they charged headlong into machine guns. I can't think of a more stupid way to fight a war. All right, I'm sort of rolling here. All right, folks, I'll be back in just a few minutes after our last break. Stand by.
0: Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770 655
2: eight zero five five and one out of four of the homeless are your brothers and sisters veterans please help them we'll be back with more after a few more messages
1: Okay, thank you, David. Folks, I want to talk to you a little bit about the airplanes of World War I. You know, that was a newfangled machine. And the old school generals, they didn't think the airplane would serve any purpose. They said, well, send it over. You know, we got blimps and go up and look at the enemy. They can give us information. But they used the airplanes basically just to fly over and try to check out what the enemy was doing behind the lines and things like that. Well, the story goes that one day... After these uh, uh, airplanes, they would play tag with each other, basically try to outfly each other. That's all they could do. They weren't armed or anything. Well, one day, I guess one of them got uh, upset about the other guy. He took a pistol pistol with him on his next flight and took a shot at the other guy in the cockpit. Well, of course, that guy started arming himself with pistols. And there were shots fired. They suddenly got machine guns, uh, machine gunners on the planes. Then they got machine guns that the pilot could fire. When they first started bombing trenches and everything, they would just pick a bomb up uh, and drop it out of the airplane. Later on, they would attach the bombs to the wings. And aerial combat at the end of the war involved hundreds of airplanes And these basically were pretty good flying machines by the end of the war. They did try to mount the machine guns on the fuselage and fire it right straight through the propeller, but they found out if it wasn't synchronized, it shot the propeller off and the airplane crashed. Well, duh. So they found a way to synchronize the bullets that would go through the whirling blades that missed. The blade itself. Before that, they had tried to put metal plates on the propellers, and the bullets would strike the metal plates and just ricochet off. But it caused the propeller to go off balance, and the plane would crash. So there are a lot of lessons, war- war- uh, war- war- oh, shoot. a lot of lessons uh, uh, earned and learned. In World War One, just about by everything. I mean, artillery, the machine guns. Um, that the the age of cavalry was over when the tanks came into being. The horses in war became obsolete. Trucks would take over, but General Patton and others in those tanks they would lead the charges with mechanized infantry after World War One. Tanks weren't that good in World War One. Uh, they were hot, uh, close-quartered, and the German tank was a monster. They didn't make many of them, but it was a monster and an easy target. Now, the Germans, by the way, when the tanks first came out, it scared them to death. They ran out of the trenches, and boy, well, we're going to win the war now. We've got these tanks, and they're going to run the Germans down, and the war's going to be over. Not quite. The German officers saw the, the uh, vulnerability of these tanks. What they did was just let the tanks come on, okay? And the German officers lined up the artillery on the sides, and the tanks basically just ran into an ambush, and the German artillery fired at them from the side and could very easily destroy the the new tanks on the battlefield. Just like in World War II, uh, perishing a tank is not a pleasant way to go. I can guarantee you that. Uh, you remember the story of Sergeant York from uh, World War One? I. I think Gary Cooper played Sergeant York in the movie Sergeant York. A few things were... Uh, missing in that movie number one when he was uh, sniping at the germans he was using a, a, a uh... nineteen seventeen springfield thirty out six american weapon that wasn't quite the case he used a british infill weapon <laughs> in real life uh... you know it, it's difficult for me sometimes to talk about world war one and world war two especially when someone says you can't serve God and serve in the military. You can't say that to the mothers who lost their boys in World War One. You can't say that to the mothers who lost sons who are buried above the cliffs in Normandy. And you can't say that to all our soldiers that are buried at the punch boat in Hawaii. And you are certainly not going to say that to the wives and the mothers and the fathers and the brothers who knew those 58,000 plus names on that long black wall in Washington, D.C. I'm rambling a little bit here. I know, folks, but doggone it, I am just so disappointed that, that we have someone running for Congress with that kind of an attitude. And I have told my brothers and my sisters, be careful because right now the military is well-respected. People thank them for the service just like they do the first responders now. And believe me, we veterans are grateful for that. But for us who served in Vietnam, we do remember coming home to, to foul language, to being accused as baby killers, and some of us had to dodge spittle. I have told a lot of folks be very careful because if it becomes expedient for a politician to turn against the military they will and I believe our station owner David told you the story about business son in Hawaii that uh, during one administration our jets were lined up uh, on the runway they couldn't go anywhere because they're being used for spare parts Folks, when we send our military folks in the harm's way, they need to be armed with the best weapons possible. You think about that. If you had to go into combat, or your son or your daughter, your mother, your father, your wife or your husband, wouldn't you want them to have the best chance of survival that basically money can buy? I've always said that any military appropriation bills should not have any kind of riders on it. They call it port. In other words, a congressman or senator, they want something special for their constituency in a military bill, and it's added to that so our military can have the finest weapons available so that a congressman or senator can have some kind of a, a favorite issue in there that takes care of something other than the military. I think that we should not have any kind of riders or pork added to a military bill. Let's look at them. And that can save a lot of money when it comes to cutting back on military spending. Uh, I know, I know that, that people admire the military now, but we've got to be very careful about this because if it becomes politically correct, to turn against the military, these politicians will do it in a heartbeat. I have no confidence in politicians always respecting the military. There are a few. There there are, well, shoot, there's more than a few. There are a lot of them that don't care about the military. They don't care about our doughboys in World War One. They don't care about what World War Two brought about. They don't even care why World War Two happened. Uh... They they criticize us using two atomic bombs to end that war. You cannot tell that to the million of American soldiers who would have died in the invasion of Japan, and you cannot tell that to the mothers and fathers who welcomed their boys home who were preparing for the invasion of Japan. I have talked to boys who trained, well, men, I have talked to men who were young boys who trained for the invasion of Japan, and they were told, chances are you're going to be killed. That's not a good thought for a soldier going into combat for his country, but it was going to be a tragedy with between 10 million and 20 million Japanese killed if the invasion of Japan had happened. So as horrible as those weapons were, I agreed with Truman's uh, uh, decision to drop those bombs, but maybe they served another purpose, too. Maybe they showed us why we shouldn't use those weapons again. There are enough nukes in this world right now to end the world as we know it. That's scary. When I was with Air Force Intelligence, I saw the overall battle plan. and this is the 60s, late 60s, of course. But I saw the overall battle plan of the targets that we were going to strike just in Soviet Russia. It was ridiculous. One of my targets I had to plot was Moscow. And one of my IP points, that's identification points, was a radio tower, tall radio tower. And the B-52s come in at low level because you can't go high because it will be shot down. They come in at low level to drop their nuclear weapons and they were supposed to use this uh, big radio tower as an identification point. And I kept thinking, wait just a minute, wait just a minute. So I went down and talked to the colonel, Colonel Crandall. I said, sir, by the time our bombers get there to Russia and Leningrad and Vladivostok and all these sites in in Russia, our submarine missiles and our ICBM rockets, missiles, are going to get there first, and there's not going to be anything left. That radio tower in Moscow is going to be melted down to nothing. I said, we can't use that for IP. I said, what do you want me to tell these pilots to drop on? He said, just tell them to drop on the big glow in the sky. That's how ridiculous it can be. And if you think about this, too, take one... American fighter from World War II when I say fighter I mean an airplane like P-51 Mustang P-38 Lightning P-47 Thunderbolt one of those or maybe a flight of those they could have basically ended the war on the Western Front in World War One. one of our modern submarines could have ended World War One in heartbeat. One one just one aircraft carrier with all its planes could have ended World War One in about a week. The jet fighters on our aircraft carriers could have ended World War One in less than a week. War. Instead of war that if the dead of war could return, there would be no more wars. If you have been at war, you really don't want to go back to war. And if a president has served in war, he will be reluctant to send our men and women into combat because he knows the cost of sending people into harm's way. And I can tell you this, too. Yes, sir. Go
2: ahead, David. uh, May I interrupt you for a second? Because you sort of touched on it uh, a little bit earlier, and I make no bones about it that uh, we're a conservative radio station, and I want to encourage everybody to get out and vote. Just like Pete said, if we put another eight years or four years even into the White House like we had in the previous administration – It'll be disastrous. Uh, We can't cannibalize our planes. We've got to give our men and women and military absolutely, like you said, Pete, the best of the best. And we have to keep the Senate. And I encourage everyone to go out and vote for Kelly and for Dave, for David Perdue. And, you know, that's the only way we have a check and balance system and if um, if you want to live under socialism and communism either vote or for the opponents that say you can't have god and be in the military which is absolute baloney and or someone that wants to do away with the military or do away with funding of our fantastic police departments so please You can go vote today, go vote tomorrow. I don't know about, well, yeah, tomorrow you can. Uh, I don't know about the weekend, but you can certainly vote prior to the 5th of January. Or if you like to vote on that day, vote on that day. But we've got to keep the Senate. I'm sorry, Pete, but I had to get it off my chest.
1: Oh, that's okay, David. I just want everybody to know, as I close out here, uh, I rambled a little bit today because I am very, very concerned about what's going to take place. If we lose the Senate, and I feel so badly for our military and what will take place with their uh, emergency response, our special forces and everything else, they're going to be decimated. So God bless our military folks. Thanks for being with me. David, I I appreciate you uh, with me on the show today.
0: Thank you, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.